If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. <laughs> Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today you'll be hearing from Priya Mavda Gopal, who is University Reader in Anglophone and Related Literatures in the Faculty of English at University of Cambridge. She's also the author of the recent book, Insurgent Empire, which explores opposition to British colonial rule, both within the empire and in Britain itself. That was the subject of her conversation with our editor, Rob Attar. Priya, first of all, where where did the idea for this book come from? The idea for the book came from various public discussions I became involved in in 2006 um, around the question of empire and remembering the empire in Britain. And some of those discussions were controversial. Um, I wrote a few uh, pieces in various um, newspapers, magazines, etc. And I got a lot of feedback from, I guess, the British public, but also uh, outside Britain. And a lot of people have very strong views about the empire. And I realized that there was quite a 
division uh, in terms of thinking about the empire. But also, I think, from my teaching experiences, where my students came to me and explained that they actually knew very little about the empire, that they had been taught very little. This is 2006, 2007. So over the years, I think a combination of public engagement with the question of empire and teaching imperial, post-imperial literature, I realized that there was probably a gap in the market in terms of um, thinking about the empire. But I didn't want to do a sort of regular book on the empire, as it were. I wanted a, a different approach. And it took me a while to think about what that approach might be. And I eventually decided to approach the topic through the question of dissent um, around the empire. Dissent, obviously, in the colonies and resistance to the empire, but also resistance and dissent from within Britain. And I think that that's really what the emphasis of the book is on. It's on people within Britain who either challenged or opposed or raised critical questions about the British Empire. To what extent were people living in the British colonies actually challenging British rule over the centuries? Well, as historians have noted, the history of the British Empire is almost entirely also the history of resistance uh, to the British Empire. Uh, Christopher Bailey, a, a Cambridge historian, noted that resistance to empire, uh, certainly in India, was endemic. Uh, there was constant rebellion, constant revolt. This is also true, uh, of course, of the slave colonies in the Caribbean. It's also true of uh, various colonial contexts in Africa. So I think it is safe to say that the empire was challenged almost from the very beginning. And therefore, any history of empire that doesn't take on board the question of uh, resistance very fully uh, is necessarily a partial history of empire. And that's one of the things I stress at the outset, is that it is absolutely vital to talk about why it is that empire was resisted in various places and how how that resistance, in fact, registered in Britain in the British public sphere and, in fact, created a range of responses within, within Britain itself to uh, empire and what it was doing um, in the colonies. And how far did those people within the colonies who resisted empire actually achieve some of their goals, for example, the ending of slavery and ultimately the ending of the empire itself? I think very fully. I begin the book with a quotation from the former slave and abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who pointed out in a very famous speech uh, commemorating the West India abolition, where he congratulates British uh, abolitionists, but also makes the point that a share of the credit for ending slavery justly falls to the slaves themselves because to the extent that they were able to, the rebellious chattel, as he calls them, uh, constantly resisted their condition and constantly resisted slavery. So in many ways, we have to think about the first abolitionists as in fact black and white abolitionists as in a, in a sense following in their footsteps. So from slavery into empire, we have uh, subjects of colonialism and slavery 
resisting and very often um, eliciting concessions. Uh, we know that the history of slavery is also the history of concessions, of reforms, of ameliorative measures. We know the same thing to be true of empire, whether in Ireland or in India or in Nigeria, present-day Nigeria. We know that empire was constantly making concessions, uh, eventually leading to home rule, uh, leading to increased participation of the colonized in self-governance, and very finally, decolonization. Um, and I think the point of uh, what I write in the book is to say that decolonization was, in the first instance, an achievement of those who were colonized and who resisted colonialism. And the same is uh, very much true, I think, of abolition. Why do you think this view, certainly in the past, wasn't necessarily the mainstream view here in Britain? People would talk about why the British decided to end slavery or end the empire. Why is it that we haven't really heard that much about those people resisting? I think that in the British political sphere and um, in British mainstream or establishment uh, versions of history, there's been a great deal of um, investment in seeing reform as coming from above. Uh, whether that applies to domestic resistance or resistance to the empire, the emphasis has been on concessions given from above as an act of benevolence or generosity. So the history of abolition in Britain largely tends to celebrate elite white men. And I think that is more or less true of decolonization and independence itself, that it is often seen as an act of uh, generosity, benevolence, decency on the part of those who were ruling. Now, the problem with that story is that it actually misses out the fact that there was a great deal of resistance and that that, that resistance was controversial back in Britain. The mainstream story of British self-conceptions of uh, British identity and British national identity is that it is a nation which conquered in order to free. So slavery itself is often presented as a story not of enslavement but of abolition, and colonization is presented as a story not of colonizing, but of bestowing independence. Uh, so you have, you know, one of the most important figures in, in the history of British history writing, Thomas Babington Macaulay, speaking in the context of slavery very explicitly about uh, Britain as a nation which loves freedom and conquers in order to save and to free. And I think that the Macaulay understanding of history as a kind of moderate, uh, benevolent, middle-of-the-road reforming spirit is something that has informed British history writing from the 19th century into the present. And when we're talking about the people living in the colonies who resisted British rule, were they inspired to do that by the general condition of slavery or imperialism, or was it particular incidents or outrages that really fueled these movements? I think it is a combination of both. Um, in the case of slavery, slaves uh, found their condition naturally intolerable from the start. We know that even the slaves uh, who were transported to the Caribbean from parts of Africa um, tried to run away, tried to throw themselves overboard, were part of shipboard rebellion. Slavery was intolerable from the start. In the case of colonialism, it tended to depend. Um, there were times uh, 
when it was part of an uh, of negotiation and collaboration and trade agreements. At other times, it was explicitly around warfare, around unjust laws, around famines, uh, around specific acts of looting or labor exploitation. So it tended to depend. It doesn't run necessarily in a straight line, uh, but you have episodic rebellion, episodic resistance. Sometimes that took the form of warfare between, uh, let us say, uh, an Indian native prince and the East India Company. At other times, it took the form of a more sustained, more public uh, resistance to specific laws and specific acts of exploitation. So it it varies. It isn't it isn't a kind of single story. It's a it's a map of resistance with different kinds of stories in it. To look at the other aspect of your book, how much were people here in Britain challenging the idea of empire during this time? I think much more than is commonly known to be the case. There is a tendency in Britain to talk about criticism of the empire as anachronistic. So there is uh, often a way in which people will say, if you criticize the empire, oh, well, back in the day, uh, people didn't have a problem with this. Or back in the day, people didn't really have a problem uh, with slave colonies or uh, race uh, hierarchies or uh, exploiting uh, labor in, uh, in the colonies. Now, this turns out to be completely untrue. We know that there is a small body of work done by British historians, which looks at British critics of empire. And British critics of empire, just as is the case with British anti-slavery, has been with the empire from the start. There were people through the uh, 18th and the 19th centuries saying uh, what is being done in our name um, and asking questions of what is being done, uh, whether in Ireland, uh, which was, of course, much closer to home, uh, or as far away as India and Africa. So even though it is not a mainstream tradition, it is not a dominant tradition by any means, it is nonetheless a significant dissident tradition. Um, And that there are people in Britain raising questions all the time, whether in parliament or whether outside parliament, whether on in newspapers or whether in kind of small radical gatherings, questions are being raised. But I think the most important thing is this, that questions were definitely raised when there were acts of counterinsurgency. So, for instance, when there were rebellions and those rebellions were put down with ferocity, and often that was the case, that there were rebellions and those rebellions in slave colonies, in India, in Jamaica, in Egypt, were put down with huge force and with a great deal of bloodshed. And at that point, just as people do today when there are kind of wars um, in the Middle East or when Britain undertakes military expeditions in other countries, countries, there were people saying, what is being done in our name? And should this be done in our name? And in fact, uh, the whole question of what it means to be English or what it means to be British came to the forefront every time there was a rebellion and a putting down of a rebellion, people saying, hang on, what are you doing in our name? What is our government doing in our name? And should we be killing black or brown people in the name of Britain? And what does this mean for us and ourselves as as British and people who live in Britain? Now, I realise there was a broad spectrum among this movement, but can we find any themes about the kind of people who were dissidents of empire? By and large, though not necessarily all the time, they were either 
liberals um, who had a dissident tendency, or they were British um, radicals who had investments, for instance, in working class resistance in Britain. They were sometimes uh, people involved like Sylvia Pankhurst in uh, the women's movement, the uh, Nancy Cunard, the uh, very committed anti-colonialist was committed both to women's issues, but also to the question of economic change and anti-capitalism. You have other people like um, earlier in the 19th century, like Frederick Harrison or Wilfred Blunt, who are, I think, a combination of personally dissident and eccentric and committed um, in their own ways to liberal or progressive causes. But Blunt is interesting here because Blunt, of course, begins as an aristocrat and as a Tory and finds himself radicalized by his experiences of the Egyptian revolution of 1882. So I think it is fair to say that the people that you find in, in the book and in in the map of British dissidents are people with a tendency to question, people with a tendency to oppose, people with certain eccentricities uh, who are not conformist. Um, but you also have people who either belong to formations like the Independent Labour Party, to the Communist Party, to the left of the Labour Party, people who are involved in politics um, in different ways. But they are very, very different. Um, they're not all kind of part of the same formation. And that is what is really interesting in, in trying to track the map of British dissidents. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So this idea that decolonization means throwing white men off the curriculum and replacing them with black women, which is how it has been interpreted in some sections of the British media, I think is completely wrong. Uh, what we're really doing is to say, how has the history of empire shaped us and how should that shape our teaching and our curriculum? We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What was the information they were drawing on to create their critiques of empire? Was the media in that day actually reporting accurately what was going on in the colonies? 
Again, it depends. So in the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, when you have the big rebellions in India and Jamaica, their main sources of news are either parliamentary dispatches or dispatches from the colonial administration in these places. And they have, of course, the Times. What is interesting about how these people respond to what is coming to them via, as it were, governmental and mainstream media sources is that they react with a critical eye. They react with a certain suspicion. And they often read what is coming to them against the grain. So you look at someone like the famous chartist Ernest Jones. He writes and edits the People's Paper. And in the People's Paper, he sets himself up as someone who is consciously reading uh, political dispatches, government memos, the Times newspaper against the grain and gleaning a different kind of reading of what is happening from these. By the time you get to the 20th century, you have travelers who are actually going to Egypt, who are going to India, who are going to parts of Africa and are actually witnessing rebellion for themselves. And then they write dispatches and they write memoirs and they write newspaper articles saying this is what we've witnessed and this is how we think the empire is conducting itself and this is what we think is problematic. By the middle of the 20th century, in fact perhaps earlier uh, after the First World War, you start to have increasing numbers of travelers and um, intellectuals and campaigners from the colonies actually present in London, in Manchester, in Paris, um, traveling through Europe, traveling through Britain, and giving their own uh, understanding of what is happening in empire. And so at that point, you start to have much more direct interaction between British dissidents, British critics of empire, and anti-colonial campaigners who are themselves interpreting insurgency and resistance in the colonies, and um, traveling a, a considerable amount in Britain, addressing public meetings, addressing meetings in Trafalgar Square, writing op-eds, writing memoirs, um, attending conferences, giving summer schools, and talking about a very different kind of empire than the one that was being presented in the mainstream media and through kind of government understandings of, of the empire. And so the, what, what happened was it, it enabled a kind of counter-discourse on empire to emerge. Now, you mentioned earlier that resistance within the colonies was really important in ending slavery and ultimately ending colonisation. How important were these British dissidents in the same processes? This is a difficult question to answer in the sense that there isn't always necessarily a straight line between dissidents and British policy. But one of the things that I do try and show in the book is that not all of those who disagreed and opposed and criticised were on the fringes. Some of them were part of Parliament. They were part of the British corridors of power, if you like, or they certainly had the ears of people in power. Many of them, like the um, Labour MP Fenner Brockway, spent their entire parliamentary lives uh, raising questions about what was happening in India and Africa, passing or proposing motions, proposing bills. Um, others were close, uh, like Wilfred Blunt, were close to people in power. His cousin was the private secretary to Prime Minister Gladstone, so he had access to power. There were others who were able to write in the media, in the Guardian, in the Times 
games um, and thereby access a wider readership. It's a bit hard and I don't really set out to say, well, X led to Y. But I think what I'm saying is that by the time you get to decolonization, full decolonization in the middle of the 20th century into the later 20th century, you certainly have a critical mass of people in Britain raising very tough questions about the conduct of the British Empire as well as the fact that people are resisting it. Now, we know that empire ended for a multiplicity of complicated reasons, um, but I do think that we have not paid sufficient attention to the extent to which resistance in the colonies, as well as dissidents in in Britain, particularly in in Parliament, did put pressure on uh, British government policy and did contribute to the liquidation of the British Empire in the end. How much do these movements come to an end after, say, the ending of slavery or the independence of African and Asian countries, or do they move into new areas? They move into new areas. So um, I do think that, for instance, um, I, I initially when I began this project, I began by looking at some of the last slave rebellions. Um, and then I set that aside and I'm, and I'm going to come back to it shortly. But I do think that you can see continuities between British anti-slavery and British anti-colonialism. Some of the same questions are being raised, for instance, about the humanity of those who are resisting, about the shared concerns that that, let us say, uh, slaves and the colonized and the British working classes have. You know, the pointing out of common ground is something we see all the way from anti-slavery through to 20th century anti-colonialism, talking about the ways in which the ruling classes of Britain are the same people who might be oppressing people in the colonies, but also uh, exploiting the British working classes. So there is there is a constant laying out of common ground and common cause, which we see in anti-slavery slavery and anti-colonialism. With anti-colonial movements, you see, for instance, that um, by the time you get to the 1950s and 1960s, people like Fenner Brockway, who are involved in anti-colonialism, start to become very involved in anti-racism. Uh, and he and others, who uh, were members of the Movement for Colonial Freedom, which was a British organization set up in the 1950s, the Movement for Colonial Freedom transforms itself by the 1970s into an organization called Liberation, which then is very involved in anti-apartheid activism in Britain. And many of the people involved in liberation also became part of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, which in turn has populated the British anti-war movement today. So there is absolutely a genealogy. And that's something I was also keen to draw out, that anti-slavery doesn't end with abolition. Anti-colonialism doesn't end with independence. But these things morph into new dissident movements that take on more contemporary challenges. And is, is that, do you think, the main relevance of this story for Britain today? I think, and I hope that um, there is more than uh, one relevance. I think, yes, I think it is important for Britons to acknowledge that, like any other country, Britain has a great dissident tradition, or dissident traditions, rather, um, and that those traditions are important to draw out in the public understanding of what it means to be British. But I also wanted to 
slightly push against the narrative of black and Asian um, and minority ethnics in Britain as simply people who are here to be tolerated or assimilated into a pre-existing understanding of Britishness. I, I hope I was able to draw out, at least to some extent, the fact that the history of empire is very important to thinking about multiculturalism, diversity, and immigration in Britain today, but also that the history of resistance to empire and the alliances that were made through the period of uh, slavery and anti-colonialism between black and Asian dissidents and white British dissidents uh, were also important to British history, and that actually we would be better off thinking about our relationships to each other uh, in Britain today in terms of alliances and networks and mutual influence rather than talking about a majority community which, uh, you know, in a sense, graciously tolerates the minorities. We have all been, or ancestrally, we have all been involved in the making of Britain. And I think that if we acknowledge that Britain is the product of alliances, uh, then I think we have a much more productive and less hierarchical understanding of Britishness today. Do you see this feeding into the discussions that are taking place around decolonising the curriculum? I would like it to. I think that too much of the discussion around decolonizing the curriculum has been around diversity. And I think that um, people are still not very clear about the distinction between diversity and decolonization. My experience of decolonization so far at, at the level of the curriculum um, has still been one of a degree of benevolence. So, for instance, um, in my own department, we have agreed to teach a small handful of black and Asian writers or open up the curriculum to the possible study of non-mainstream black Asian writers. That to me seems to me not the answer. Decolonization, and I, I tell my students this, is really a question of all of us. And I mean uh, all of us asking what is our relationship to the project of empire and how has that shaped how we are today? Um, so this idea that decolonization means throwing white men off the curriculum and replacing them with black women, which is how it has been interpreted in some sections of the British media, I think is completely wrong. Uh, what we're really doing is to say, how has the history of empire shaped us and how should that shape our teaching and our curriculum. So I think, again, I'm a little concerned that the discussion on decolonization has become one of tolerance and assimilation rather than a more complicated and challenging engagement with how the British Empire shaped the world for several centuries and that this is a legacy and an afterlife that we all carry with us. So I would hope that the book would contribute to discussions around decolonization, but perhaps in a more complex way than just diversity. And in general, why do you feel that this topic generates so much heat and, and anger in the media and online in particular? Well, I think that there is a great deal of investment in the idea of change as coming from above. 
and a great deal of investment in the idea of, let us say, establishment benevolence and governments as doing things for people. And what we generally see is that the role of people in making change, whether we're talking about the reform acts of the 19th century, which gave people the vote, whether we're talking about you know women, and not just uh, middle class or upper class women, but women across this country fighting for the vote and, and making a lot of sacrifices to get the vote, whether we're talking about anti-racism uh, and the ways in which that was not something that was conceded easily from above. It took a lot of fighting and struggling. In fact, it took nine times before the first anti-racism acts were promulgated in the 1960s. All these concessions have been ultimately a result of struggle. And I think that the mainstream media, certainly the commercial media, has no investment in really thinking about um, change as coming from below. I think that that is a very threatening idea to uh, some of the powers that be. But I also think in a very unfortunate way, the story of empire, rather than a story in which we are all shaped by, in which some of us are complicit, that story has been racialized. And it has been racialized, uh, unfortunately, into a story of white benevolence and blackened brown people, essentially as being uh, uplifted by white benevolence. And I think that there is a great deal of racialized investment in that story. And my hope, again, in writing this book was to say, well, if we think about things in terms of reciprocal shaping, of encounter, of certainly of conflict, but also of alliances, then that gives us a different way to talk about empire, one that is less invested in hierarchy and one that is less invested in, uh, as it were, racial dominance or uh, racial superiority, that we can think about the question of empire in ways that are certainly difficult and challenging, uh, and that may certainly be threatening to the powers that be, but in, at, at a more democratic level, empowering to people uh, who are uh, not necessarily invested in those hierarchies. That was Priya Mavdagopal. Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent is out now, published by Verso. You can, of course, read more about the history of the British Empire at our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Simon Jenkins will be exploring the history of Wales. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.